everybody, and welcome to the next edition of the Legal Glass Ceilings podcast. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome my guest this morning, Sherry Blair QC, who is a very distinguished lawyer in her own right. Some people may know her better as the wife of the former Prime Minister, but she had a stellar legal career. She sat as a part-time judge for a long time, and many of the cases that I now deal with are cases in which she was previously involved as, as an advocate. She's also got a very impressive record of assisting both charities and in particular, young people who want to come into our profession. And I hope that we can talk about the ways in which she has worked and her experience of encouraging people with talent to come into the profession from all backgrounds. Cherie, good morning and welcome to Legal Glass Ceilings. I'm absolutely delighted to join you today, David. Sheree, tell me a little bit about your background, because I don't think you came from a background with multiple generations of distinguished lawyers. No, absolutely not. On the contrary, I came from a um, working class family, Though my father was an actor and 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 my mother briefly an actress, so she then went on uh, to work in the retail trade. Um, I was brought up by my grandparents. My paternal grandfather was a merchant seaman, traveling on the merchant sea, seaman ships from Liverpool to Africa. Uh, and my maternal grandfather was a miner, a shot firer in the mines. Uh, so if anyone had asked when I was born in 1954, this working class girl would end up as a Queen's counsel and part-time judge, they would have fallen about laughing. In fact, I was the first person in my family uh, to go to university. Well, you, you and I have one thing in common, which is that we're both from families of actors. Um, <laughs> I wonder if that influenced our choice of professions as um, appearing on the court stage rather than the uh, in the royal court. I think it definitely influenced my choice of profession because I saw how, uh, though my father was very successful in the 60s and was in the very early famous uh, comedy soap opera, um, playing himself, basically, the scouse git until death is due part. He, uh, you know, he, he obviously was unemployed a lot of the time. He didn't support my mother and my sister and myself when he left us when I was aged eight and my mum was left living with her mother-in-law to bring us up as a single parent. You know, I was very conscious of the precariousness of the acting profession and, and I wanted to provide and give back something to my mum and grandma in a more stable, reliable income. Uh, foolishly, I thought that was the bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't done too badly out of it. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I think you grew up in Liverpool. I did. And obviously at a state school. How yep. did you So it was a grammar school. It was a convent... Um, it's now a comprehensive. I've been back since, but I passed the 11 plus and went from a state primary school when uh, there were like 50 kids in my class and only three of us passed the 11 plus to go to the grammar school. And then I went to an all girls convent direct grant grammar school. And the day I walked into that grammar school was the day that I basically was cut off from all the other kids who used to be in school with me because they all went to the secondary modern school and there was a big divide I didn't actually enter the the grounds of the secondary modern school that they all went to uh, until 1997 when I was uh, my husband was prime minister and I went to open a new building at then St Mary's comprehensive uh, sorry Sacred Heart comprehensive 
and uh, that was the first time I'd actually ever been inside what was now the lower school and had then been St. Bede's Secondary Modern School. So the divide was very clear. The fortunate few working class people who got into grammar school were entering into a different world. And perhaps a world where you didn't belong completely in your no, new world, no. but you were also separated from your old world. Exactly. But you clearly thrived in that environment, despite not coming from a traditional background that, that delivered the, the grammar school children. Why do you think you made it through to the top of the top of the year? Uh, well, partly, partly because it turned out I was clever. Um, <laughs> Uh, obviously, they thought I was clever in my primary school, uh, but it turned out that I was clever in my grammar school too. And indeed, you know, I, then when I went on to university and I got first at LSE and then I came top of the bar finals. So I was just blessed with good academic ability. And um, the other thing, I suppose, was the gift of the gab. Well, I'm sure there's an awful lot of hard work in there as well as natural talent. <laughs> and the other thing was the belief and the desire for my mum and grandmother, both of whom had left school at 14, my mum, because her own mother died, she had to look after her father and her 10-year-old brother, and he was a minor, so she had to give up her schooling. And my grandmother, because in working-class Liverpool, you know, every working-class girl and boy stopped school at 14. Yeah, yeah. And went to oh, work. Always um, so they were passionate that I would get those opportunities that they didn't. And thanks to their sacrifices, I was able to take advantage of what was opening up for people like me because there was an opening up in education. Uh, I got a full grant for my university. I even saved in my first year. And then I got a local authority scholarship to do the bar finals, which by the time my sister, who followed in my footsteps three years later, those scholarships were no longer available. But by then I was working as a barrister and I was able to pay for her fees to go and qualify as a solicitor. Tell me how it felt, having been a working class last from Liverpool, but also having got top of the bar finals, therefore clearly being intellectually equipped for the job, when you then went into chambers for the first time to do pupillage. Well, I don't know. Um, yeah, working class was clearly one issue. I certainly felt very much a fish out of water when I first went to dine at Lincoln. I didn't realise... It was very strange to me, the rituals. It's, it's much later in life that I realised that's what happens in Oxford colleges. It's what happens in the public school. But this whole idea of dining and passing the port and all that, I mean, it was a complete mystery to me. And I think no one really told me the jargon and how to behave. So I had to learn that by getting it wrong most of the time. We've all, read, we've all done that. And how forgiving were people for you getting things wrong? Uh, not particularly at the time, but, you know, once you start fitting in and gradually, they, they, they all forget. They all think you must have come from the same background as them, even though inside, you know, you didn't. You might be found out <laughs> at any stage. Um, but the, the, most, the other big issue was being a girl. So the, the reality was in 1976, when only 10% of uh, the entrance to the bar were women being called to the bar, there's a picture of my uh, year that Tony and I got called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn and there are 10 women and 70, 80 men. And when we looked into it, there were about 20 or 30, when was it in the 1990s when there was an anniversary, 30 men still practicing and one woman, me. Yeah. 
You know, and Chambers would say, well, we don't take women. The clients don't like it. Or, I mean, I did find the Chambers to take me in the end. But then at the end of my time, you know, they said to me, well, Sheree, there's two candidates here. There's a girl and a boy. So obviously we're going to take the boy because, you know, he's the one who's likely to stay. In fact, of course, they were completely wrong because the boy was Tony Blair and he buggered off after um, seven years. Yes, I, I can't quite remember what he did for a living after yeah. that. Well, he did something. So, uh, yeah. Sexual <laughs> stereotypes, that assumption that because I was a woman at the bar, you know, I'd have babies, I'd leave. Actually, they think they thought I was more political than Tony, really, I think, more than anything else. Uh, we're quite wrong, you know, because here I am 45 years later, 25 years at QC, <laughs> still practicing at the bar. Though this time now I'm practicing in my own law firm because I, I chair Omnia Strategy and we specialize in international disputes, business yes. and human rights. How much do you think the bar has improved in terms of equality of opportunities in its structural approach to recruitment and, and, and tenancy decisions? Um, today, if you're a female and you have money behind you, I think you have as good a chance as a, as a, as a young man to get taken on. I think uh, we still have to do a lot in relation to minority ethnic groups, disabilities. But I think, to be fair, the bar is trying. But the big thing that holds people back, and that's whether you're a boy or a girl of a minority ethnic group, able-bodied or not able-bodied, is money. And today, it's very difficult to break into the bar without financial support. Socioeconomic diversity is an enormous challenge to the bar. It's about identifying talented young people who can actually afford to to have an opportunity because there are, they, they come at a university with enormous debts. They then have to go and do the bar course, which produces them with even more debts because unlike you and me, there's no, there's no local authority funding. And so many don't simply make it to the, to the sky. Many, many, many people from fortunate backgrounds don't make it, but it, either, it, you know, it's, it's very competitive. But um, the one advice I always give to people from moderate backgrounds wanting to go to the law is to do a law degree, because at least then you're eligible for the government grants as an undergraduate. So many schools try to steer them not into law because they think it's difficult to get into and you can always do the conversion course without realizing the expense of the conversion course. And though it's now, I think it's about £12,000 that you can do. I mean, £12,000, where does that come from? No, and, and not only do you have to pay for the course, but you also have to live and uh, trying to work and, and maintain yourself whilst at the same time doing a, a pretty intensive academic year is, is really, really tough. So I do think that we need to do more as a profession. Uh, and, and I do understand my colleagues because many of the scholarships and grants are done on academic merit. And that means they are given to people who actually could afford. And I can see why they, they want to do that. But when we have a real problem about people who are equally talented but have no money, I do think we have to prioritize those who don't have financial supports behind them. Should we be doing more to assess people's potential rather than assessing how far they've got, given where they started, which is also unequal? Um, I think, (laughs) you know, there's only, I think there's two problems for for the bar in particular. There's only so much you can do about a society which is increasingly unequal. Mm. It's going to get more unequal. Even the results of COVID are going to impact on the poor more than the comfortably well-off. I mean, that's just the reality. 
families with no access to the internet, with no access to iPads, no access to computers, are suffering their kids when you know they're sent home from school don't have an alternative. So you know, there's only so much one profession can do about that. Yeah. I think the other problem for the bar is honestly, because we're made up of individual self-employed professionals, it's much more difficult to get these often fiercely independent people to agree to support their future competitors. <laughs> yes, even though that support is essential to maintain the future of their profession, Absolutely our not. profession, which is our livelihood. The, 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 and, you know, to be fair, the, the, the large commercial and successful sets do, in fact, provide very generous uh, pupillage grants. But, you know, those who are working at the criminal bar, the family, certain parts of the family bar, you know, who rely on legal aid and public resources, well, you know, they have had a very, very tough time. And to ask them then to put their hands in their pocket when they can barely pay their own bills is quite a big ask. It is an enormously unequal profession, the bar, just as entry to the bar is unequal. But I, I don't want to be too depressing about this because it's an amazing profession and the opportunities are fantastic. And if you do get the chance to be able to contribute, not only to making a difference to individuals' lives in the cases you take that affect individuals, but if you're lucky enough, as I was, to do precedent cases, which you kindly mentioned in your introduction, you can actually use the, the law as a tool for social change, which I've always, always believed in. So, um, you know, I would never say to anyone, don't come to the law. It's, uh, it's not for you, because it absolutely is for people from diverse backgrounds so that we can develop the law in a way that reflects the reality of people's lives. So we have to do something uh, to, to support that. Because we give our we use our talents, we use our ability to give voice to people who otherwise would be voiceless when they have needs that often they can't explain through language, through culture, through a whole variety of reasons when the system just doesn't work for them. It doesn't work really for litigants in person, which is why the, um, the governments, and this, this is not the current just the current government, though we have had 10 years of increasing austerity. It's, it's been going on for some time, uh, uh, this lack of appreciation that if you just cut back on legal services in the courtroom, you're not actually saving money. Today, our courts are clogged up by so many litigants in person. The abolished, the taking away of legal aid, which I used to do in, in family disputes you know the when we used to do family property disputes the legal aid board would have a charge on the on the property and would get their costs back eventually yeah. Yeah. uh that was all abolished so they don't you get litigants in person who don't really have the 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 understanding or the skills to to present their case speedily and efficiently and so the courts get clogged up and the judges are, uh, can't or are reluctant to enter into the arena to help one side or another, uh, you know, and the system grinds to a halt, and that's what we're finding. Yeah, very short-sighted not to understand that if you're talking about the justice system, the courtroom and what happens in the courtroom and the representation of people in the courtroom is as vital as the police service and the social services at one end and the prisons and the delivery of remedial services in the social services field at the other. And you can't just cut off the middle and hope it all works because it doesn't. And if we have a young person listening who is maybe 
at school or possibly in the early years of university and they think yes i want to be that young person i want to be that lawyer giving a voice to a client in need in the courtroom what would be the best advice you could give them as to what they should do to improve their chances of being able to enter this mythical and mysterious profession well, first of all don't let that the, the the mysteries of it put you off you you're entitled to be there secondly of course i'm afraid there's no there's no answer to good results <laughs> you need good results because with so many people applying uh you need to stand to stand out and i think many places now do recognize that if you come from uh, uh, a non-public school in a, in a in a in an area where the schools are, are not known to be so uh, successful that you should be given credit for doing doing well um, but still you know good results are important the other thing is self-belief you've got to believe in yourself uh, and I suppose finally if you want to be a barrister um, anything that shows you can stand you're not frightened of standing up on your two hind legs and talking is, is very useful whether that's drama whether that's debating whether it's involved in, 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 in societies that have, where you've shown leadership skills, uh, these things are all important. Uh, and it's, of course, it's easy to say uh, a varied CV. It's very difficult at the moment because for so many young people, they're not getting any opportunities because of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, usually we'd say try and find uh, some work experience, you know, but one has to be realistic about how many people can afford work experience and fortunately many uh, people are realizing that and providing at least some kind of support even for work experience and finally I'd say don't if you want to be a lawyer don't disregard the apprenticeship route where you can um, both learn and earn at the same time um, unfortunately there aren't many well, if I don't think I know of any apprenticeship routes for barristers but there certainly are for solicitors and if you qualify as a solicitor you can become a solicitor advocate and that's and that's the route that many that's the route many people have taken including I, now on our supreme court indeed indeed uh, and and we have high court judges who have worked for the government legal service as well as those who've been in, in independent practice can i ask you one question which has has come up in a number of interviews there's a tension between people feeling the need to adapt to the profession that they're entering and the need to be themselves and continue to be themselves which is perhaps in conflict with how they think that lawyers should be how much do you think young people have to accept a need to adapt to the, the profession they're entering well i think in in all life you tend to, your your surroundings shape you and so you will tend to adapt however um it was <laughs> When I first started, you know, saying laugh and bath, having a Liverpool accent, which I don't have much of one now, it's true, or hardly any, except when I talk to fellow Liverpudlians. Um, but, you know, these days, regional accents are not a, a bar to being an advocate. There's plenty of examples of that. So being yourself is important, but, you know, you also, as in any profession, also have to conform <laughs> to the norms of what is, in, is not right behaviour. <laughs> No, I mean, I appreciate we all, we, all, we all have to suffer with wearing suits. Um, we have to look respectable. We have to moderate our language. But that point about accents is interesting. There aren't many QCs with brummy accents. Well, 
Well, I think if you went to the Birmingham circuit, you would find them. And certainly you'd, you'd find them with Northern accents in Manchester and Liverpool, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Th- that's quite an important message to people, which is you don't have to completely discard yourself and become no. the identical lawyer. But you do need to prepare to, to adapt to an extent. Well, I think it's not so much prepared to adapt. I think you are, you do adapt because of your environment. Everybody does. How much do you think technology and the way that we deliver law through technology has changed and will change for tomorrow's generation of lawyers? Oh, I think the technology has made a, a, a huge difference. It's allowed, frankly, the courts to carry on. My own daughter is a, a family law barrister who does uh, local authority childcare cases, and uh, they're still going on because they're obviously emergency cases. She's been doing them over Zoom and over the phone. So technology has been vital. In that, I mean, essentially, her bundles and her papers are all delivered electronically. So that 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 all happens. All our textbooks are essentially online these days. You, know, you in the old days, you know, you travel with huge numbers of files and books that you'd stagger over to court carrying. These days, they're they're all on your computer in your laptop. Vital tool, I think, for a young barrister is a efficient, uh, large disk computer laptop <laughs> and an ability to to continue to adapt as it adapts and make the best use of it i think that, that we will see a lot more virtual hearings um going on because actually uh, certainly for pre-trial matters it's actually very efficient and doesn't but stops people having to come to court uh i think we will see going back to live trials for witness actions of course but um it's shown that you can do things in a different way and by doing that save costs and in the end a justice that is unaffordable isn't justice at all indeed Sheree in closing what do you think is the best piece of advice you could give to somebody who wants to come into our profession uh, work hard be authentic and somebody once famously said don't let the buggers get you down on that note Thank you very much indeed. I'm very grateful for your time. uh, And I'm sure there'll be many people who will also be enormously inspired by what you have to say. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.